Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, founder of the Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. I want to thank you for sharing out this podcast and for reviewing it and letting your friends know it's really picking up pace and that's super exciting. If you didn't know, there's a Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group where we do an after the show discussion and talk about the podcast throughout the week. We also do something called Lighting Our Lamps, Morning Inspiration for Moms. This last month we were doing it every morning. We're going to move that to Monday mornings with perhaps a follow-up on Friday. And we do some inspiration and then some gratitude and truth statements to start our day and week out right and to be the sunshine makers in our homes. This month, we're going to focus on the Mission Driven Life book and those four foundational laws of life mission. We're going to focus on one law per week. And we would love to have you join us there and, and engage with us in that activity. It's going to be a lot of fun. The audio book of the Mission Driven Life, if you don't have it, is still available at themissiondrivenmom.com. But I can't guarantee how much longer it will be available because big changes are coming. So make sure and grab that while you can. Now, if, if you don't belong to our email list, you may want to join it because we let you know everything that's going on. There's already been several things that have been released and there's just more coming at a pretty rapid rate. We already let you know that registration is open for our fall event, the MDM celebration. This year, it's Mothers of Vision where we will do a vision walk and work on outcomes, truth statements, habit stacks, all kinds of cool stuff like that, accountability, and really send you home with a powerful action plan for creating a more intentional home for yourself and your family and making that vision become a reality. There's three ways to sign up for that. You can do the event alone or the event plus the recordings, or you can add two months of mentoring with me. And so those options are available 30% off through the end of May. So you probably want to take advantage of that. And then we've got a Mother's Day sale going that just started up. It's for $50 off. So it's only $199 for everything for life, the workbook and the printouts and the Facebook group, the accountability partner, the full MDM Academy with 33 video lessons and printouts and slides and downloads and bonus materials and all kinds of incredible stuff. Q&A, Facebook Lives, and you'll really, really love it. I have to say one of the best things about it, uh, the content's pretty phenomenal, but the women are absolutely amazing and you'll want to get to know them because they are the cream of the crop inspiring stellar women. So today we get to continue our feminism series and we're going to kind of focus in kind of right around the 1700s. One of the things in doing more of this research for you that I realized and that is that we need to pause for just a minute today and talk a little bit about rights because that's really the fundamental issue that we're talking about and a, and the, the better handle you have on what rights are and how they work the better you'll understand it. I'm not going to get into a lengthy treatise on this today. I mean we could spend hours and I could go through several readings and all of that kind of thing. What you need to know is that rights is a very abused word in today's world and 
the concept of entitlement is really being uh, used under the guise of rights. And so it's something that we don't study nearly enough in school so that people can really be informed citizens. And so it's something that may not be very familiar to you. It wasn't to me until I dove into my own liberal education and learned it for myself. But it's very vital to know, and it's very vital to, to teach to your children. Because the fundamental issue with the issue of women is, first of all, are there human rights? And if there are, doesn't everybody have the same rights? Well, yes. Do they have different roles? Yes. Are they different biologically at birth? Yes. Are they drawn to different things? Yes. So um, one of the things that's happening historically, we went through some really cool women that you learned about in these previous feminism podcasts. Today we're going to talk about this idea of rights and dive into a couple readings from the 1700s that uh, I think will be of interest to you. One of the things that you need to know about Western history is that it's kind of this march forward with human rights. It's the uncovering of, of the idea. Um, it was always intuitively known as part of our birthright, but writing it into governmental code, having it be honored by the people who are, you know, quite, quote, governing you is a whole other story, right? Because so often it's the case that when people are in positions of power, they don't want to give other people power. They want to keep their power. And so they try to subvert them in whatever ways. So what we see is this clear and clear understanding and this larger and larger championing of human rights. So a pivotal document around rights, of course, is the Magna Carta in 1215. You've got a king, King John, who is overstepping his bounds. It has been the case that kings had to sign um, and say that they would basically honor the rights of their people, essentially what it was, and that they were below the law. And King John didn't like that. He didn't want that to be the case. And so the, um, they basically the free men, but what was really kind of the nobles, got together and wrote the Magna Carta basically to try to bind John to natural laws and human rights. Uh, it starts out, to all free men of our kingdom, we have also granted for us and our heirs forever all the liberties written out below. And so they want the king to sign it and to admit, you know, that he needs to live below the natural law and be subject to the law in addition to the people that he reigns over. So this is growing more and more. There's these, you know, fights between, you know, the first class of people that really wants to assert their right as these nobles, and, but there's still serfs and all this kind of thing. And so more and more over time, we see advancements. We see that more and more people, because of course we know, like for example, in ancient Greece, it was a small percentage that were actually landowners and kind of aristocratic that were the the free men, the ones that voted, but there were some. And so we're marching forward, we're doing a better job, we're giving more rights to more people. And then we get to this point where if you're a land holding male, then your rights are more honored and you have more freedom. And so then we start to have this fight for women. 
that women should have the same rights as men. I want to read you a little bit. This comes, this is, this is written in the late um, 19th century. So this is the end of the 1800s, Lysander Spooner. But the way he talks about rights is very, very helpful for what we're talking about. And I just want to give you a taste of, of what he's saying here. He says, the science of mine and thine, the science of justice, is the science of all human rights, of all a man's rights of person and property, of all his rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is the science alone which can tell any man what he can and cannot do, what he can and cannot have, what he can and cannot say, without infringing the rights of any other person. It is the science of peace, and the only science of peace, since it is a science which alone can give us on what conditions mankind can live in peace or ought to live in peace with each other. The ancient maxim makes the sum of a man's legal duty to his fellow men to be simply this, to live honestly, to hurt no one, and to give to everyone his due. So he goes on to talk about these rights are inherent. Everyone has rights. If there's such a thing as justice, which we intuitively know that there is, then there are rights that flow from justice and all mankind have the same rights and those rights need to be honored. And he goes on to, to kind of explain, um, and this is something he doesn't say in quite these words, I extrapolated it from him and other writers, but basically if you imagine your rights as one side of a coin, then the other side of the coin is duty. And when our country did a better job at speaking in terms of natural laws and principles and rights and duties, they use the duty, the, the word duty often. If you go back to 19th century writings and before, you're going to find that word duty all the time. And it is because it's connected to this idea of rights, which is intimately connected with this idea of being a citizen in a free nation and and knowing how to perpetuate liberty for future generations, which is all very, very critical and was the initial um, catalyst of American education. That was what we really wanted to do, was raise young men and young women who knew how to perpetuate liberty. So you have a coin and each side of, you know, you can't have rights without duty. Your rights are my duty, okay? And so that being the case, we basically have fundamentally four human rights, the right to life, liberty, property, and conscience. All, pretty much all rights can be stripped down to that. Now, if you want more on this particular concept and how you can apply it in your home, we will soon be releasing the recordings from last year's event, celebration event. And one of those presentations was by Julie Greenman on um, on discerning with social issues. And she goes through this in more detail and the, the moms worked together to try to look at different rights and how they come down to this these four basic rights. And then she talked about how to parent in a way that's in line with rights and duties. So that was pretty cool. And using rights as a way to discern social issues. Uh, one more thing I want to read to you from Spooner, just so that we know we're kind of on the same page here with a couple writings we're going to go through. If there be such a principle as justice or natural law, it is the principle or law that tells us what rights were given to every human being at his birth, 
What rights are, therefore, inherent in him as a human being necessarily remain with him during his life, and however capable of being trampled upon or incapable of being blotted out, extinguishable, annihilated, or separated, or eliminated from his nature as a human being or deprived of their inherent authority or obligation. So if there is a thing called justice, and there is, then that means there's natural laws from that flows principles, and they can't be exterminated. No matter what form of government you have, no matter what kind of civilization you're in, no matter what you're taught growing up, the understanding, the inherent understanding that you have rights is born in you. Like, if that isn't a proof of God, I don't know what is, my friends. But anyway, so that's... Uh, really awesome. And if you haven't listened to our three-part podcast series on uh, the introduction to principles where I talk in more detail about natural law, go listen to that because uh, that will really help you. So here we are making progress, giving greater liberties to more people. I mean, in the 1600s in England, if you didn't belong to the religion that the king or queen wanted you to, you were persecuted, sometimes you were imprisoned, sometimes you were killed. I mean, we're still, you know, we're still trying to <laughs> figure out how to get, you know, how, how to create civilizations where all rights are honored. And so we're making progress. Certainly there's more progress there than there was when everybody was serfs, you know, three or 400 years prior. So making progress, but it's still kind of awful in that sense. And so people are escaping to America and they're running their own governments and liberties being created. It's all this cool stuff. So then in 17, in the early 1700s, in fact, he's born in um, 1661 in London. He's an Englishman, Daniel Defoe. And you've probably heard of him, if you have heard of him, because of his really famous book, Robinson Crusoe, which is one of the first novels, because that's the newest um, genre. And it's, but it's, it's, it's worth reading. It's good. Anyway, he's, he's one of those guys that always says what he thinks. That's basically what it came down to. I mean, at one point, he was even a spy. Maybe he was a spy twice. I can't remember. And sometimes he was on the good side of the law, and sometimes he was on the bad side of the law. He's just kind of one of those guys. But he wrote and wrote and wrote. I mean, he was a prolific writer. He, he could almost, you know, the first draft right off his pen was, was almost just finished draft. And he was very persuasive. He was a great political writer because he was a passionate writer, and he could, you know, incite passion. And so he wrote a little track. He would, he printed, I mean, we still don't even have a full collection of all of his writings because he just like published stuff, just all kinds of stuff. But we do have some of them. And one of them that has made it down through time is called The Education of Women or On the Education of Women. This is in 1917, this was published. So one of the things that you have to know as we move toward modern feminism is that the earliest issue which these two writers are going to talk about is education for women because you know when the vast majority of people were just peasants then nobody was educated but then as there became more and more liberty then there became a middle class as um, you know there was artisan guilds and all that kind of stuff and in the medieval times and and so then this middle class kind of became more prevalent. 
and in that sense became more educated. And then eventually by about this time, you know, may, earlier, I, I, I could, hadn't been able to find when it became commonplace for women to be taught to read, but they, it was commonplace for them to be taught to read. And, but the majority of their education happened at home. Sometimes they never went to school, or if they did, it was just kind of an elementary school type experience, just to give them the basic rudimentary arithmetic and, and reading skills. Mostly it was the arts of homemaking. They needed to know how to make cloth and sew, um, and, and these were very practical, important skills, especially when you had the you know, predominant number of people were peasants. Then women needed to know how to clothe and feed their children. There wasn't time for, for the leisure of a lot of extended education if she was going to pluck chickens and all the things that were necessary. But now you have an increasingly you know, more and more affluent society, more and more educated society, and it, you know, it starts to be more and more people are speaking out that the education of women should be expanded. They have more time, more, um, there's more availability to it, there's more books available, there's more opportunity for it, it's more affluent society, but it's not socially accepted. And so it's not done very often. In fact, some of the people um, that are most prevalent in society, in fact, one of them is Mary Shelley, which we'll talk about in just a minute. They, they're educated by, at home by their fathers. Abigail Adams have an, an incredible education by her father at home. So sometimes it was done. And what's, what's crazy is that those women who received the best education, you know, just rose up and became leaders, as, as you can imagine. And so Daniel Defoe prints this little tract on the education of women. And we'll link it. You really, it's really short, easy read, and it's passionate, but it's, it's really awesome. He's, he's really sweet about women. He really, he loves them. He stands in defense of them. He just thinks, in fact, this is how it starts out. I had, I have often thought of it as one of the most barbarous customs in the world, considering us as a civilized and a Christian country that we deny the advantages of learning to women. So he just thinks it's awful that women don't have access to the same level of education that men do. They do learn to read and they are literate, but there's not much beyond that. Um, he says, in fact, I'm confident that had they the advantages of education equal to us or equal to men, they would be guilty of less than ourselves. He says, um, they're taught to read and perhaps write their names and so on, but that's really the, the extent of their education. And he says, the reason that they need to be educated is because it will elevate them. He says, the more educated someone is, the more cultivated and civilized they become, usually. And um, he, says, he says, they become less, education carries distinction, right? And he says, what has woman done to forfeit the privilege of being taught? He says, why are, I just don't understand why we're not doing this. He says, in fact, it looks as if we've denied women the advantages of education for fear they should vie with the men in their improvements. So maybe we're not educating them just to keep them down, just because they don't, we don't want them to rise above us in station or knowledge because we want to suppress them. I mean, he's like, that's, that's a horrible, awful reason. And so... If that's our reason, then we'd better get on the ball and start educating them. He says, this is what I think they should learn. Languages, especially French and Italian, 
necessary air of conversation, a lot of reading, especially in history, so they can be taught to understand the world and be able to know and judge of things when they hear them, which seems so obvious and common sense to us, but it was not a new idea then. It was discussed. It just wasn't popularly accepted. He says, the whole sex of females are generally quick and smart. And then he says this, one of my favorite things he says in this writing. And without partiality, a woman of sense and manners is the finest and most delicate part of God's creation, the glory of her maker, and the great instance of his singular regard to man, his darling creature to whom he gave the best gift either God could bestow or man receive. And it is the sordid sordidest piece of folly and ingratitude in the world to withhold from the sex the due luster which the advantages of education gives to the natural beauty of their minds. Um, she is every way suitable to, uh, to the sublimest wish when she is well educated. The man, oh, so then he goes on to say, when she's well educated, she is a creature without comparison. She's angelic, she's heavenly, she's soft and sweet and loving and delightful. And every man who has a woman like this in his life or a wife like this has nothing to do but to rejoice in her and be thankful. Isn't that sweet? And so he's just encouraging people to start thinking about this and making it um, of, of high importance societally. He says, men and women aren't all that different, basically. The great distinguishing difference between the sexes is in their education. And really, this goes back to, and we'll, we'll talk more about this in detail when we get into the 1800s, and then we'll talk about the, 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 the 20th century. But, um, you know, women were seen as inferior because they were seen as highly emotional and volatile and weak physically, weak mentally, weak emotionally. And... Some of, these, some of these great writers, we talked about them in some previous feminine, feminism podcasts, but here again, the same idea comes up that what if we educated? They probably wouldn't be that way if we did, right? So then he goes on to say, herein it is that I take upon me to make a bold assertion that all the world are, in mer- are mistaken in their practice about women. For I cannot think that God Almighty ever made them so delicate, so glorious creatures and furnished them with such charm, so agreeable, delightful to mankind, with souls capable of the same accomplishments with men, to be only stewards of our houses, cooks, and slaves. So, um, he, isn't that awesome? He's just like, totally stands in defense of women and wants to see them rise to their very finest He says, um, although many people agree with me, it's usually harder to get them to fix it than it is to get them to agree with it. But this chapter, he finishes, this chapter is but an essay at the thing, and I refer the practice to those happy days, if ever they shall be, when men shall be wise enough to mend their practices toward women, mend it. So that's a really fun um, reading from, (coughs) 1700s around feminism which is essentially not feminism in the modern sense it's simply just saying now that we've advanced it's time to make the next advancement it's time to educate women as much as men are educated so here's one more reading that I'll go over with you just quickly from this time period it's near the end of the century 
1792, it's by Mary Wollstonecraft, A Vindication of the Rights of Women. And this is a popular one in women's studies programs and all that kind of thing. What's interesting to know about Mary Wollstonecraft is this. She writes this treatise, which I actually agree with a lot of it. I've not read the whole thing. I'll just disclose that. Uh, many of the things I have read, I agree with and I think are wonderful. She was answering, so um, Talleyrand, who came to be known as Talleyrand, was a leader in the French Revolution. And just before the French Revolution really kind of took off, he put together a policy for the new government where he said what the women's education would be and it made her really mad. And so she hurried and wrote this and she was gonna expand on it and write more later, but she, she died after her daughter was born. And so she never was able to do that. So she died at 38. The tract came out and it was talking about how people sometimes will say, oh, women were so suppressed that everybody hated it. That's actually not the case. It was well received. People were really ready to hear this. They'd been already been thinking it for a long time. They were really, I think, starting to want, some people anyway, were wanting to mend the problem and give women a more extensive education as a general rule. But the problem was <laughs> that, well, I'll give you a little backstory. So she actually talks a lot about God and principles and all that kind of stuff in this writing but she didn't live a very moral life herself. She had some affairs, she had an illegitimate child, and she married her husband the year she died. In fact, I, she may have become pregnant before they were married, I don't know, but the baby was born in August and she died right after. And then within about a year, her husband decided that he was gonna write her memoirs and he disclosed that she was super highly passionate and emotional. And what's interesting about that is that she talks a lot about reason and how women aren't naturally emotional. It's just men think that they are, they really you know, have reason and use reason. And she was very self-educated. She was financially independent. And she talks about that. And so she's, she's very eloquent and, and it's a very well put together um, tract and she makes some good arguments and all that kind of thing. The problem is that her husband did this memoir and he claims to have deeply loved her and want to tell her story, but he just kind of calls her out. He talks about how passionate she was. He talks about her affairs and he talks about her suicide attempts. So it's like, it's it, the whole situation is really, really interesting. And the truth is, I don't know. I think, I think the, the affairs and certainly she did have a child, a, a, I think a son by someone else. So that's, that stuff is substantiated. Maybe it's all been substantiated. Maybe it's all absolutely true. I don't know for sure, but it is quite ironic. Um, she's kind of said to be the first feminist and largely because of how she lived her life. And she used the arguments of the day to make her case, which was very diplomatic of her, even though I'm not sure exactly how much she believed it, but she used that terminology and those tools. So interesting reading here. So she's responding to Talleyrand, and I'm just gonna quote a few sections really quick as we finish up from this tract. Um, we can link it to, it's longer, It's I don't know, a little over 100 pages. 
if you want to read the whole thing. It's worth reading. It's worth knowing and understanding what she's written here. She, she has some good arguments to make for sure. And so she kind of calls him out. She says, you know, I don't, I'm not writing this for myself. I'm writing this for my sex. I've, I want to defend them. I'm financially independent. I don't need the money. I just want them to have their, um, their rights met. And one of the things I want to point out here as we're going through this for just a minute and for the next, you know, few months is that she's using the same kinds of principles and concepts that we were talking about many of these medieval writers were using. And many of them, if you'll recall, were very virtuous, God-fearing women. And so here's some of the key ideas that come up often when you're talking about, quote, feminism or womanhood or women until you get about post-World War II. Then things really start to shift. The, quote, second wave of feminism begins and everything takes on a new definition and the arguments are all brand new. But until then, in order to get the first goal, kind of, was to get education, more full education for women and get them access to higher education, and then the right to vote. And these are some of the things that are commonly cited. Reason, that women have reason, the same as men, that they have the right to develop their reason, the idea of natural rights, and that men, women share natural rights with men that there are, there's truth and there's true principles that need to be deferred to, that, that rights are built on and that need, to, that need to be honored in order for women to meet their potential. The concepts of morality, God, natural laws, morality is brought up a lot, family, personal development, and motherhood, the need to have a great education so you can be a better mother. And that was something that, that Defoe kind of mentioned as well. So it's important to take note of that because the whole conversation shifts to something completely different, okay? So one of the things that I really love that she says here, she uses the word principles a lot. Um, these glorious principles that give substance to morality, the rights and duties of women, these simple principles. I'm just skimming through this introduction that she's written this dedication that she's written to Talleyrand. She said, fighting for the rights of women, my main argument is built upon this simple principle. If woman isn't fitted by education to become man's companion, she will stop the progress of knowledge because truth must be common to all. Okay, so that's awesome. She says, how can a woman be expected to cooperate if she doesn't know why she ought to be virtuous. If freedom doesn't strengthen her reason until she understands her duty and sees how it is connected for her real good, if children are to be brought up to understand the true principle of patriotism, the mother, their mother must be a patriot. And of course that's true of many other areas of life. Um, she says chastity must be more must more universally prevail, which is fascinating because she <laughs> wasn't chaste. She had all kinds of premarital, outside of marital relations, and even children outside of marriage. Chastity will never be respected in the male world until the person of a woman is not virtually idolized while the woman has little virtue or sense. And what's, what's ironic about that is here's a woman who is highly educated and financially independent, and she is less moral than she's wanting, I guess, others in society to be. So ironic. And 
the point I wanted to make too about bringing out the memoir that her husband wrote is that it that is why this writing was put aside because she you know that was a huge thing I I still think it's important that we know who is writing what we're reading and that their moral character is pretty consistent doesn't have to be you know point by point that everything that we you know think is right that they agree with or that kind of thing but if they're going to teach morality they should probably be moral <laughs> you know like there should be some consistency there and so the fact that there isn't is what made people just kind of throw it in the trash they were like look you know him calling her out like that her him writing that memoir made everybody turn their backs on what she had written and the truth that she had really taught which is really unfortunate she says surely sir you won't say that a duty can be binding without being founded on reason for civil and political rights can be drawn from reason and with that splendid support the more understanding women acquire the more they will be attached to their duty understanding it unless they understand it unless their morals are based on the same immutable principles of those of man nor authority can make them virtuous um she goes on to talk about there's this really great part where she starts out on human rights so that's her first chapter which you know it really just comes down to this idea of rights. When we understand rights clearly, then we don't need to be feminists or not feminists. We don't need to stand in any camp. We can just stand on truth. We can just know what natural law is and we can know what human rights are and we can know what the first principles are. And then we don't have to be on anybody's quote side. We can just stand for the truth that any side might represent. This was a favorite thing she said. Um, if women aren't permitted to enjoy legitimate rights, they will seek illicit privileges. Uh, and that's really true. And so she's, she's going to teach her principle, she says. So this first chapter starts out this way. Human rights and duties, uh, human rights and duties, they involve, okay. In the, so that's the title of the chapter, sorry. In the present state of society, it seems that we have to go back to first principles in search of the simplest truths to fight against some prevailing prejudice for every inch of ground. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because the second um, podcast in that intro to principle series is on first principles, and we really take a deep dive in first principles. You can ask those that are in the academy level too, because <laughs> we're really seeking to understand what first principles are and why they matter. And I love, she says first principles two or three times, again, confirming this was the language used earlier on that helped make conversations more clear and you know, helped people share out their ideas. And so we follow the arguments in level two. And this is what she's doing because she understands that arguments are built on first principles. So she's laying down her first principles first by starting with human rights, and then she'll build upon those. And because the mind, you know, the rational, reasonable mind should assent to a first principle. So she begins there. Only a strong mind can resolutely form its own principles. That was probably my favorite quote. I absolutely love that. We have to build our minds if we're going to know what the principles are and stand on them and then again she cites going back to first principles in order to make her case um and so she then she then she goes on at the end of this first chapter to talk about how god has made us to be happy and if he's made us to be happy that's um 
the way that we can be happy is to know our rights and and have them be honored and and so he would give those rights to women as equally as he would to men and so that they could be happy so anyway those are some sources for you to ponder and spend some time in if if you want to that give us a better understanding about what rights are and how they play into this whole idea of feminism, why they're so critical to an understanding of feminism, and how the first really big step forward that, that they wanted to make was better education for women, more expanded education for women, which I think is great, I'm totally for. So that's our podcast on feminism today in our feminism series. Thank you so much for joining me. We would love to see you in the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group to enjoy the morning inspiration with us on Mondays and to continue the conversation around this podcast. So please go over and join that and grab your free copy of the audiobook, The Mission Driven Mom, while it's still, uh, the, sorry, The Mission Driven Life, while it's still available. And I will see you next time.